You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Hopefully you were able to tune in last week and um, watch our sermon on Jonah. We pre-recorded it um, with me heading to the beach and you know, we did that sermon series back in 2013. We went through the entire book of Jonah verse by verse. And so last week was more of a recap overview um, of what God's word has to say to us uh, in that uh, minor prophet. We'll be back in our minor prophets next week with Obadiah. And uh, then we'll continue through the rest of them in order. Um, but today we're going to pause like as we always do every six to eight weeks and, and just do kind of a recap application points uh, that really need to be driven home for us as we um, come out of our study of the image of God, and then as we look back over the past four prophets that we've looked at. And again, when we were kind of laying this out, I was kind of laying this out in my mind about our teaching direction coming out of the Gospel of John. At the time, I didn't realize how interwoven these two series were going to be, the one on the minor prophets and then the one on the image of God, and how they, they really cross over so well with the message that the minor prophets are trying to get across to God's people because so much of what they are addressing, rebuking, and challenging God's people in uh, is tied to the image of God, whether it's the distortions of, distortion of God's image where they have created idols that they're giving their affection to and giving their hope and trust to, where they've not properly valued the image that God has given to them. And that's the image of God seen in every single human being, right? And so the injustices that are taking place, the the lack of value that's being placed on others, and God's having to address that. And so um, I think what we were able to study weeks ago with the Image of God series has really helped me at least better understand what this message uh, is in each one of these minor prophets. So we're kind of going back and looking at our Image of God series first, and then we'll come back to Uh, looking at what God has been teaching us in the Minor Prophets recently. So thinking back on that Image of God series, we'll get some feedback from from you guys. What are some things that, without me recapping, um, really stands out to you and and something that you remember? It's been five weeks now maybe since we uh, were in that series. What are some things that still are standing out to you today that have impacted you that you're trying to implement in your own life, and then I'll walk us back through it real quick um, as well. Any thoughts on that? Yep. Okay. So for those of you that are listening at home, I don't know if you can hear any of that or not, but Anna talked about um, just being mindful when we're out and about, people that we come in contact with, that we don't miss um, the opportunity to communicate with other image bearers, that we don't just rush through the grocery line or the drive-through and, and lose sight of the fact that we are interacting with people who bear God's image. And then Topi was talking about how we don't fall prey to thinking that people's value is tied strictly to what we can get from them, that we're not using them as a tool um, strictly for what we can get out of the relationship. And then Jesse was mentioning um, it even changes how we perceive and view our enemies and the value that they possess even in opposition towards us. Let's look at those three sermons again real quickly. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. I want to read uh, the account of God's creation for us there. Um, But that first sermon series, Made in His Image, part 1, our summary sentence for that week was, being created in the image of God means we are made like God in order to represent God, which ultimately means the worth and purpose of every human life is defined by God and for God. Um, And this is... And this is why, you know, our Genesis study several years ago was so important because so much of 
how we're to think about this world is shaped by what we learn in the book of Genesis, that our understanding of the origins of life really shapes our day-to-day understanding of how we're to interact and, and what our purpose is, what our value is, what our identity is, right? And we learn all that from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, that God has created us to be in his image. He's given us value and purpose. He's defined all those things for us. Here's why, why we've been placed on this earth. Um, here's why the things in, on this earth are like they are now, right? Because of that origin of sin uh, story that we have contained for us there in Genesis. And so um, we, we understand through Genesis 1 um, the, the, the model that we're created after, and that's after the image of God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is where God you know, looks back on it and says, This is very good, right? Verse 31, His whole creation, very good. And creation culminates with His creation of humankind, both male and female being created in the image of God. We talked about how it's not that important to really try to narrow it down and get real specific about what it means to be made in the image of God, that we can stay more broad in our understanding and say that basically it's all the ways that we are God-like, right? All the ways that we are like God encompass what it means to be made in his image. And so uh, we even talked about from a physical standpoint, no, God is not a physical being. Scripture is very clear to describe him as a spiritual being, that Jesus takes on human form, right? Um, But there's ways that we understand how God operates through our physical bodies. It gives us context, right? So the Bible talks about how God can see, God can hear, God can speak, and we understand what those things mean through our physical bodies, right? Um, I certainly understand the concept of hearing far better than maybe I normally would in the fact that I can't hear properly right now right? Um, but God hears, God sees, God speaks. These are things that, that resonate with us because we know what it means to speak and we know what it means to hear. We know what it means to see, right? And so um, that's one, one aspect of how we are uh, created in the image of God. But then we also have the capacity to reason, to use abstract language, to demonstrate creativity. We have eternal awareness. We have a moral sense of right and wrong. These are all things that... Um, demonstrate our, our God-likeness, that we are made in the image of God. We are made after him, right? And so uh, it gives us uh, value. It gives us purpose. Um, and scripture is real clear about that. Genesis' description of the image of God helps define things for us. It um, helps us to not think too highly of ourselves, right? That, that we're not God. We see that very clear from Genesis, that, that we are created in the image of God, that we ourselves are not God, but it also helps us to not think too lowly of ourselves, right? When people fall into um, a state of mind where uh, they begin to question whether they have any value and whether they have any purpose and whether their life matters at all, it's a distortion that they, they've, they've broken away from a true understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are valuable as human beings, right? We are not animals. We're more than that. Right? I, think, I think Genesis is very clear that we are more than that. We are not relegated to the same status as a puppy dog or as a whale 
or, or any of the other things that people value and, 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 and want to, um, to invest their time and energy in, right? You've got all these species of animals with, that people are very prone to protect because they're endangered. Then we have our love for pets, right? These are great things. These are parts of God's creation that he gives to us for us to enjoy, for us to value, for us to appreciate. Um, I love going to the, the beach. I love being at the ocean. I love being able to appreciate God's creation. I love being able to see the marine life. I love being able to catch the marine life. I love being able to eat the marine life, right? These are things that God has given to us. He says, subdue the earth, right? Take care of it, enjoy it. But he gives us a higher status than all these other things that he's created, right? Um, so it helps us uh, appreciate ourselves in some ways as well, right? That we have value because God gives us that value, we don't think too highly of ourselves, but we don't think too lowly of ourselves either. Um, it helps define for us our identity. Who am I? It helps define our value. Do I matter? It helps define our purpose. Why am I here, right? We are here to make much of him on this earth through the ways that he has gifted us. It helps us to value other people as well, right? We don't want to so personalize this that we miss the fact that every person sitting in this room Every person that we come in contact with over the next week possesses that same type of value as well, right? A person's worth is defined by their maker, not based on outward physical appearance or abilities. Um, We, in our flesh, are prone sometimes to think that somebody's value might be tied to what they can offer us or what they can do for us, what type of abilities they possess, what what they physically look like, right? We're, We're in a situation right now where our culture is divided over um, certain issues that are tied to, to skin color, right? And, and what scripture says is that those aren't the things that provide value. Those aren't the things that we base our, our worth on, right? We base our worth on the fact that we are all created in the image of God. There are unique aspects about us, right? Um, there are unique aspects when it comes to skin color, when it comes to abilities, when it comes to things that we're capable of doing. But our worth and value is not tied to those things, right? I'm not more valuable if I'm a... Uh, athletic individual. I'm not more valuable if I have a incredible mind that is capable of incredible things academically, right? I'm not more valuable uh, if I possess those things, right? I'm, I'm valuable because of God's definition of how he's created me, and I've been created in his image. And so uh, that shapes our, our understanding in, about issues related to abortion, uh, euthanasia, right? That human life has worth and value from the very beginning until the very end, until the very end. Um, and, and even as our minds begin to fade, it doesn't devalue who we are created in the image of God. It just doesn't, right? We talked about my 90-something-year-old grandmother um, and, and how her mind is wandering and her mind's not fully there and, and, and she doesn't fully understand the things that she's doing right now, but she still bears the image of God right? And her life doesn't need to end prematurely. It, it ends on his timetable, right? Because she has great value and worth as an image bearer of God. Um, and and, our, and our, I stand and say that with conviction, not because I love her, but because scripture says that, right? Because I would, I would want to feel the same thing about your grandmother that I've never met before, right? She has great value and worth, not because you love her, but because God's word says that about her, right? So it shapes our belief system about these things um, and these issues. And they're, they're important issues. They're relevant issues because we live in a country where we get to help shape how our country responds to some of these issues, right? Like we have the privilege. We have the great opportunity when it comes time to vote, that we get to, we get to vote according to what we believe scripture would have us do 
um, in relationship to what he says about people, right? So our, our understanding of how to even vote about some of these things is tied to what Scripture says in Genesis um, it also gives us our proper way to worship, right? We don't create idols in hopes of fashioning God's image. He's already given us his image to us, right? Um, instead of focusing so much on how to construct God through some type of idolic um, uh, image, right? We, we Instead, Scripture calls us to focus very much on the fact that we are around God's image all day long with the people that we come in contact with, and we are to love and to serve those reflections of him, right? And so, kind of talked about the implication of of that first week in this study being that all people are created in the image of God that should change how we view and interact with others, as well as the issues that we care about as believers, right? Every life matters because every life is created in the image of God. And and I would say that when, um, when people start to feel like their life doesn't matter, that, that we're to step in and we're to help, we're to help change that perception even, Right? Um, because every life does matter before God. And if, if there's a group of people that start to feel like their life doesn't matter, then we need to take note of that. We need to take note of that and we need to work against that, not just passively in doing nothing to contribute to that, but actively trying to communicate that, that life does matter, right? That life does matter because God has created us in the image of God. Image give us, gives us reason for that equality, um, and what do we do with that image? We, we talked that first week about man being called to make much of God by doing much with the earth, right? So then we moved into that second week where we talked about it's all well and good. God creates us this way before sin, but, but what does sin do to all that? How does, sin, how does sin change the image of God, right? And so we said that sin does drastically affect our ability to image God well through salvation, but uh, or it affects our ability to image God, but through salvation, we are being renewed and called to recover more and more of his image in us as we learn to live our lives in conformity to Christ's image, right? So sin takes this image of God that God says is very good, it taints it, it messes it up, and now God is working to fix that image in us, in each one of us. And we call that sanctification, right? That's where God is renewing us and making us more and more like the image of Christ. And so Jesus comes to be that perfect human being for us, to ultimately satisfy God's wrath, die in our place, raise again after three days so that we have this hope of eternal resurrection as well. But in the midst of all that, he's, he is also laying out this perfect example of what it looks like to be human, what it looks like to image God well, what it looks like to have a mindset of serving others, right? We talked in, in our study in the Gospel of John about how Jesus models this so well for us that on the, on the eve before his worst day of his, of his earthly life, he's washing the disciples' feet, right? At a time where he should be pampered, at a time when he should be served because of what he's about to do, he stays very servant-minded, right? To the point that he's even washing the, the feet of his enemy, Judas, right? He's the perfect example of what it looks like to be human. So while sin taints the image of God and affects our ability to image him well, and our ability to see it in others properly, God is working to fix that. But in this state of uh, existence before our salvation, man, we just, we don't image him well, right? We're very selfish. We're very me-centered. We don't worship God properly. We don't image him properly, and we don't value others properly, right? James chapter 2, we looked at um, verses 1 through 13, where James talks about the sin of partiality, right? Where we in our sinfulness, are prone to value others based on the amount of money that they have 
And James even uses the, the church scenario where somebody comes into your building and you take care of them, welcome them, and show hospitality to them based on what you think their income is, right? What benefit they may bring to your church gathering based on the amount of money that they make, what job they have. And, and if somebody comes in kind of poor and destitute and doesn't seemingly have much to offer, James rebukes them for kind of casting those people to the side, saying, oh yeah, you're welcome to be here, but you, you're going to sit way over there, right? But then somebody else walks in, some, some prestigious individual, some community leader or some well-known individual for a company, and, and they say, oh, uh, we want you to sit here. We want to take you out to lunch right after church today. Like we want to, we want to really uh, entice you to stay with us, right? James says, man, don't be guilty of showing this sin of partiality, right? Don't be guilty of this. Scripture also talks about how we're to value those with different backgrounds, right? Old Testament is full of laws and guidance about how Israel was to, to treat the foreigner, right? The individual who comes from a different background, who has a different skin color, who has a different cultural setting, Right, that we're to treat these people with, with great value and with great respect. Uh, and, and I would say God even tells Israel to go overboard in some of their treatment, right? Like we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna heap value upon these individuals to show that, that they are part of God's image as well. So from an implication standpoint, we talked about how while we are still image bearers of God in our sinful state, we are far less like God than we were before our sin. So we are still God-like, we still bear his image, but it's not as... It's not as clear as it was before sin, right? We talked about we are, we are kind of like a mirror that's meant to image God, to reflect God. But in our sin, we're a broken mirror. And you have to really look close. You have to kind of look around the cracks to see the mirror. For the mirror to be useful when it's cracked, you really have to make it work, right? And that's how we are in our sinful state. And God is working to fix that mirror uh, through his son, Jesus. Christ comes to fix us. We're called to pattern our life after him, uh, by treating others like he would treat them while compelling others to do the same. And so that led us into week three, made in his image, uh, part three. God's plan has always been to repair his broken image in humanity by doing everything necessary to conform us to his son's image, leading to immediate effects in how we love each other now and eternal effects when he returns, right? So Christ comes to fix us, and we see this uh, beautifully in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, if you want to turn over there. This is a super familiar passage that sometimes gets um, applied and misused in, in a way that's not consistent with the original meaning because we like, to, we like to pull the part out that sounds really good and claim it for ourselves, and we might miss the overall purpose of it, right? So when we were looking at uh, this passage that week, we said, Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's this great promise here that God loves us and he works everything for good, right? We, we love that part of it because that resonates with us. That means that even in the midst of tumultuous times where things aren't going our way, where things aren't working out according to how we planned for them to work out, we turn to a passage like this and we say, hey, God's gonna, God's gonna do something good here. God's gonna do something good here. What, what, what seems like evil, God means for good, right? But then Paul defines for us what God means by that good, right? 
It's according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? Well, his purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. And that's not always good from the earthly definition of good, right? It's not that um, your house burns down, and so God's going to make that good because he's going to give you a way better house when when it's all said and done, right? Um, God works good in every situation for us by conforming us to his image. That's the good that he promises is that we are going to be remade in the image of Christ. And when we look at Jesus's life in the gospel of John, there's some clear things there, right? That Jesus promises that, hey, following me is going to lead to persecution at times. It's going to lead to rejection at times. It's going to lead to even death for some of my followers at times, right? That's the image that, that God is promising us, is that we get to be conformed to that image, an image that is uh, committed to serving others, to sacrificing for the sake of others. And we have to work hard to fix our minds on this purpose and, and being good with that and content with that. It necessitates us unconforming our minds to what this world says is good. So we get that from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You keep reading through Romans 12 like we did that week, and you start to see what happens when we conform to the image of Christ and we don't conform to the things of this world. Verses 3 through 21, you start to see what it looks like to be conformed to the image of Christ. You start to see these compelling acts of love that take place towards others, right? In verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. And you read that, and all of that is contrary to what sounds good from an earthly perspective, right? Uh, for us to be patient in tribulation, it means that tribulation is coming to us, right? Um, and then you see this self-sacrificing attitude where um, we're contributing to the needs of others. We're showing hospitality, which means we're opening up our home, opening up our, our things that we have so that others can use them, right? That's what it looks like to be conformed to the image of Jesus is that we, we show genuine acts of love towards others. So being made in the image of God means that we have value, others have value. Uh, it shapes how we treat others, right? It shapes how we treat others. Um, it shapes how we interact with others. Um, and, it, and as Jesus is fixing us, what we ought to see is more uh, consistent acts of love flowing from us towards others. And we'll talk a little bit about the application points to leave you with um, at the end of this, okay? So then we, we, we went from that series into our prophetic study. Um, and I told you up front that when we study these minor prophets, we're going to really harp on God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and God's love, because we see those running themes throughout the minor prophets, that God is always in control, uh, that God is holy and separated from sin and will not tolerate sin. But even in communicating judgment and rebuke towards sin, what, what does he couple that with? He couples that with his love, right? There's these opportunities for forgiveness and for, um, for change to take place, for repentance to be accepted. We saw that last week with the Ninevites, right? That Jonah comes preaching and, and doesn't even tell them 
that there's opportunity for repentance, right? Just comes and says, hey, in 40 days, uh, your city's gonna be done with, right? And then they immediately go into this response of repentance and confession in hopes that God will respond to that. And we see that God does respond to that, right? Um, But while we're doing this minor prophet study, I told you that my, my goal as a pastor for you is to make every aspect of, of Scripture feel approachable for you, right? Like, I, I don't want you to ever feel like, I don't think I could study that book of the Bible, or I don't know how I would learn from that book of the Bible because it's just way too confusing, right? So that's why, we, that's why we went to the book of Revelation. That's why we taught through the book of Revelation. That's why we're teaching through the, the minor prophets because these are sections of Scripture that a lot of times people say, I just don't get it. All right, it's so poetic. There's so much imagery there that I don't know if it's real or not real. It's just hard to understand. I want us to teach these books because I want you years later to have a foundation that you could go back and read these and study these on your own and feel like, hey, I, I can do this. I can do this, right? Um, but maybe more importantly, we're studying these because we want to gain a, pic- a greater picture of God's love for his people. We certainly are seeing that in the Minor Prophets, um, that God has an intense love for his people. Um, And we also want to see Jesus being the fulfillment of these scriptures, right? When he's on that road to Emmaus, he's talking with the two individuals. The Bible says that he he began to show them how the minor prophets and and the major prophets were talking about Jesus in their writings, you know? And so we we want to see that together as a church family too. So uh, the first book that we looked at, Hosea, um, we get a picture of God's love there, right? Hosea's love for his unfaithful bride is a picture of God's steadfast love through Jesus to redeem and renew unfaithful man to him. You'll remember, and man, because we're so unfamiliar with the minor prophets, something like today is really important because if you're not careful, you'll just completely forget about it a couple of weeks later, right? Hosea is written to rebuke the northern kingdom, the, the people that we call Israel once the kingdom split, right? Sometimes they're referred to as Ephraim because that was one of the major tribes of the northern kingdom. Sometimes they're referred to in this book as Samaria because that was the capital of their kingdom, right? Hosea rebukes them uh, through his marriage story, right? God calls Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman and to stay with her despite her unfaithfulness. Uh, because it pictures what God does to the people of Israel, that he, he covenants with them and stays with them despite the fact that they are unfaithful to him. This is where we begin to see how God's people, Israel, does such a poor job of imaging him well, right? Um, they're worshiping false images. Chapter four, verse 12 of Hosea talks about the idols that they've set up. But then they're also disregarding the true images, in chapter 13, verse 2, what does it say? It says that the, the people of Israel are guilty of kissing idols, right, and killing people. They're kissing idols, these images that they've made that they believe reflect God, while killing people, the image that God has given to us to love and to respect and to take care of, right? And so they've, they've really perverted what it means to, to understand the image of God. They're trying to create God's image while they're killing off his image, we also see that they are guilty of lying, stealing, killing. We talked about how they're doing a better job of imaging Satan versus imaging God. Um, but we learn a lot about the gospel from this book of the Bible, right? We learned that the gospel is about God's initiating love towards us. We know the Bible teaches that in the New Testament, right? That, that we love him because he first loved us, right? And, and that's what we see from the story of Hosea and Gomer. God tells Hosea, go marry her. 
right? Go pick her out. I've selected her because she's an unfaithful individual and I want to picture my love for the people of Israel. The gospel is God initiating love towards us. It's about God paying the price necessary to redeem us, right? Gomer gets into all kinds of trouble with her unfaithfulness and and Hosea has to go and purchase her back to him. She has these debts that she owes to these other lovers. Hosea has to go and pay those debts so that he can reclaim her, which is exactly what Jesus does for us, right? We have have, uh, earned the, the necessary payment that sin is death, right? And Jesus pays that debt for us so that he can reclaim us. And gospel calls us to live differently now. Um, In chapter three, Hosea chapter three, verse three, Hosea goes and claims his unfaithful bride out of her adultery, but gives instructions to how she's supposed to live in light of that salvation. It says in Hosea chapter three, verse three, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you, right? He tells her to change her ways, to to be different. Um, The book goes on to say to listen to his voice, to respond to it. And this is where we see that this story is bigger than just Hosea and Gomer. It's about us and God. And I mean, this has become one of my favorite passages in scripture. And I don't know that I'd ever read it before uh, in depth before our study in this book. Um, But in Hosea chapter 11, verse 10 They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Right? The picture is that God roars like a lion, and those that are truly his people, they come running to him for refuge. Right? And it talks about this restoration that happens where um, the people of Israel come home to be with him, and they're preserved and they're taken care of. Um, that's the picture of, of us coming to the gospel, right? The gospel call, the gospel roar goes out and we respond to it and we come running to him for salvation. And that's the picture that we see in Hosea. And then the challenge is that we don't become adulterous like Gomer was. Um, James talks about our unfaithfulness to God being like the unfaithfulness of a spouse in a marriage. James chapter four, verse four, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't be conformed to the world. Be conformed, transformed to the image of Christ. If not, we're in in jeopardy of committing adultery, uh, which is the, the picture that's portrayed there in the book of Hosea. Joel came next, who can endure God's wrath. This is where we talked about disruptive circumstances in our life, giving us necessary reason to pause and examine our life with the goal being to repent of sin and return to God in faithfulness as we look towards the coming day of the Lord. This is where day of the Lord kind of got introduced into our vocabulary. Um, Joel is talking about this concept of day of the Lord, and we defined it as specific times in history when God appears in a powerful way to both confront evil and save his people, right? So there's all kinds of days of the Lord, these what we call many days of the Lord, not M-A-N-Y, but M-I-N-I, right? These little days of the Lord where God steps in in a powerful way to confront evil and to save his people. And these are precursors to the great day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and steps into human history for kind of a final time where he confronts evil and saves his people, right? We see this in uh, 2 Thessalonians when, when Jesus returns, right? But 
prior to that, there's these little days of the Lord that happen. Uh, day of the Lord, you could refer to when uh, in, in Egypt, right? When uh, Jesus sends the death angel who passes over his children who have the blood on the doorpost, but he takes and claims the firstborn of every Egyptian household, right? He's confronting evil. He's saving his people, right? Day of the Lord continues uh, just hours later when they're at the Red Sea, right? Looks like the demise of the Israelites. God has brought us out here so that he can kill us and the Egyptians are gonna win is what the people of Israel think, right? And then God steps in and says, that's not what's happening, right? And the, the Red Sea splits and his people are saved and evil is confronted when the, when the seas come pouring down on the Egyptians, right? So that's what day of the Lord is and what it means. What Joel's talking about are these many little days of the Lord that are happening that are pointing to this great day of the Lord. And for the Israelites at that time, they were on the bad end of it. This plague of locusts had come to them and was wreaking havoc upon their lives. And Joel's like, hey, don't miss the message. If you don't repent and get things right, another day of the Lord's gonna happen in the form of this dark army that's gonna come and seize control of you. And if that doesn't get your attention enough, the great day of the Lord is coming when Jesus comes back, right? And so Joel's challenge to the people of Judah is get things right now before this future judgment comes. We want to be on the right side of that roaring lion when that day comes, right? So again, another favorite passage of mine in in our study here is in Joel chapter 3, verse 16. You have this imagery again. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, That's when we're supposed to come running to him, right? The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Verse 21, though, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So there's two pictures here of how this lion functions, right? He's a protective lion for his people, but he's an avenging lion towards those who do not belong to him, right? So on that great day of the Lord, It is a great day for his people and a horrific day for those who do not belong to him. We want to be on the right side of the roar. We want to be on his side. We want to be behind him because we came running to him in this life when he roared with the gospel to save us, right? We listen to his voice. We yield to it. We heed it. We come and we come running to him so that on that day of the Lord, when he roars in vengeance, we've already had our vengeance taken care of, right? It was taken care of with Christ on the cross. Um, he's already paid the debt for us. We don't, we don't owe anything at that point, right? Amos talks about, does God care? As God's image bearers, we are to mirror his character by upholding what is right. And when evil creeps in, taking action to make things right once again in our society. So we talked to, we framed that up in the concept of righteousness and justice, right? We wanna mirror his character because we're image bearers of God. We wanna mirror his character by upholding what is right the righteousness aspect. And when evil creeps in, we take action to make things right once again, the justice aspect. These are two words that that the psalmist uses in Psalm 103 to describe God, right? Says in uh, Psalm 103, 6, which again, we didn't plan it this way, but that psalm worked out so great with our D groups to go along with what we're studying in the minor prophets. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And that's the theme in the book of Amos, is that God does care about injustice and he works to fix it, right? So he cares 
about the individual who has been abused. He cares about the individual who has been oppressed. He cares about the individual who has been devalued and mistreated by society. He cares. He cares about those individuals, and he has set up the the government that we have in place to, as best it can, try to bring justice to those situations. And we've had people that are a part of our church that have worked in those settings to try to bring justice to those types of situations. It's why we support the McMurray family um, over in Nepal, because he is working over there to bring justice to the sex traffickers over there, right? Because we care about those people who are being trafficked. We care about those individuals who are being oppressed. We care about those people who are being mistreated and abused, and we want to see justice happen. We want to see justice take place. We want their value to be known to their oppressors, that, hey, they are, they are not just a, a means for you to make money, right? They're not. They are, they are image bearers of God, and they don't deserve to be treated the way that you're treating them. And so we value justice. We uphold that concept of righteousness, and when when evil creeps in to pervert that, we do something about it, right? We do something about it. We try to bring justice to those situations. And God cares how we treat others. He roars, the Bible says, against injustice. It makes him angry and it moves him to action. Amos chapter one, verse two, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, the top of Carmel withers, right? He's angry about the mistreatment that's taking place. He expects us to respond when he roars with these instructions, right? In Amos chapter three, verse eight, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? There's, a, there's an obligation on our part to do something with what we are hearing and reading in these minor prophets. We're to mirror his image by caring for justice and for righteousness. We see this at the end of um, chapter five. Verse 14, this is instructions to us as God's people. We are to seek good and not evil that they may live, that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Then you skip down to verse 24 and this is, this is how we're to be described as God's people. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Like we are, to, we are to overwhelm our context, overwhelm our community with a devotion to righteousness and justice. We're to bring that to our community, that we are a people devoted to these things. I mean, we're still trying to work out what that means, how that looks on a practical basis. But Amos certainly helps us to see that God does care and he cares greatly. And then Jonah helps us to see that God cares for Israel and for a lot of other people besides Israel, right? It's not just about Israel. We're called to communicate God's compassion and mercy to even the worst sinners because if they choose to repent in response to his word, they too can experience his forgiveness. You know, my perception of this book was radically changed in 2013 when we studied it because for years it had been taught to me in the Sunday school context where Jonah was called to be a missionary. He was scared to death about being a missionary. And then God had to get his attention because he ran away in his scaredness. And then he eventually became a missionary and, and did what God told him to do. And that was kind of the, the pitch that I was given in Sunday school. Um, and there's some truth contained there, but there's some, some other things that aren't uh, communicated in that story 
properly, right? Because when you read Jonah, it really starts with what he says at the end of the book. You understand the whole book by what he confesses about his sinful heart at the end of it. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, this is after God has relented his anger. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This is another passage from Psalm 103. That he's a merciful God, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah's basically saying, I didn't want to go be a missionary because I knew you'd save these people, and I didn't want you to save them. I wanted justice, not mercy for them. Um, these are our enemies, and, and I don't like them, and, and I don't want to see them saved, right? I don't want to see them forgiven. Um, and, and this is where sometimes we, 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 we love the gospel for ourselves, and we're, we're not faithful to, to, to share that with others, Right? We want God's forgiveness for ourselves. We want his mercy. We want him to be slow to anger. We want him to be abounding in this steadfast love towards us, but we don't always want him to act that way towards other people, people that we deem as our enemies, people that we deem as people who deserve justice. Right? We believe God's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We need to believe that he should be that way for others as well. The worst image bearers need our compassion. Think about the bad people in this book that get his compassion and his mercy and his slowness to anger. We talked about the sailors, right? These, these guys who Jonah gets on a boat with. These are guys who worship other gods, right? They're, they're not doing a very good job of imaging God well, right? But God gets their attention in that storm, kind of wrecks them. And, and after they cast Jonah into the sea, they, they really believe that this God of Jonah is the God of the sea and the God of land. Talks about them repenting, talks about them worshiping, talks about them covenanting with this God, right? Then you've got the people of Nineveh, right? Jonah does such a poor job of presenting the gospel, just tells them, hey, judgment's coming. They get things right with God and God relents towards them, right? But Jonah's probably the worst sinner in this story because he's the one who says, I know who you are, and I hate the way that you are. I hate the, the type of God that you are. I hate that you're the type of God who will forgive people of their sins. And how contradictory that is, because Jonah's the one who needs his sins forgiven by the end of this story, right? He's the one who has demonstrated such a lack of care and a lack of love for others. We don't deserve his mercy either. And I think Jonah probably fell into a category of believing that he did. Remember, we've talked about how uh, the people of that northern kingdom of Israel were enjoying all this time of prosperity despite their sin, right? Jonah's not enraged about that. He's not enraged about the fact that people are getting something that they don't deserve. They're getting all this prosperity despite their sinfulness. He's so consumed with the fact that Nineveh should get what they deserve, right? They're, they're rebellious people. They're sinful people. They should get God's wrath. It's exactly what the people of Israel deserved, right? And God was relenting his wrath towards them as well. All right, that's a big recap summary of the last seven, eight weeks. I want to give you four things to remember, four things to do in response to this application Sunday, all right? What should I remember from everything I've said today in the last several weeks? Number one, God has created us God-like and is now working to make us godly in response to our sin. Don't forget that. 
Don't forget that, that God has created all of us God-like, whether we're part of his people or not, right? Whether we're, we're a Christian or not, every single person we come in contact with is very God-like because they bear his image. And what God is wanting to do now is to take these God-like people and make them godly, right? By changing us, transforming us, weeding that sin out of our life and conforming us to the image of his son. Number two, every human being possesses great value because they bear God's image and should be treated with love and respect. We ought to be a voice in the midst of the turmoil in our country right now that we as Christians believe that every human being possesses great value. Isn't it interesting to to see that people who don't worship God believe that every human being has value, right? It's it's, it's some of the the foundational aspects of our country's founding, right? Uh, And it's something that people champion for when they see it not being applied, when somebody's being mistreated and being devalued. It's because God's written his law in our hearts, right? So even the unbeliever understands this law that every human being possesses great value because they bear God's image, should be treated with love and respect. Number three, God cares greatly about how we treat others and will judge us accordingly. So he's told us that we're created in the image of God and that he's set expectations that we treat each other that way. And he's going to judge us if we, if we don't treat people that way. That's, that's kind of what we're seeing in the minor prophets is that the people of Israel are guilty of not treating people with love and respect. They're abusing them. They're mistreating them. There's injustice. There's lying. There's stealing. There's killing. Right? They're, they're not valuing each other properly. And God cares about that, and he's going to judge accordingly. Think about how he divides people up in Matthew 25, right? Those who took care of the poor, those who cared for the sick, those who were servant-minded towards others, they're in one group. And that group's saying, when did we do this for you, Jesus? He says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, right? And so how we treat others is a reflection of what we think about God because we're seeing God's image in other people, Right? God cares greatly. Number four, the gospel is for the worst sinners, which is why you are included, right? We can't miss the fact that the gospel is for the worst sinners, and we can be thankful for that because if it wasn't, we would be excluded from it, right? That's what Jonah missed is that he thought in some way he um, deserved or um, was entitled to the slow and merciful and and gracious God, and Nineveh wasn't. He didn't see his sin properly, and he he didn't see their sin properly either, right? The gospel is for the worst sinners, which is why you're included. We can't lose sight of that. All right, so what what should we do? What's kind of the application for us in what we've been seeing over the last several weeks? Number one, seek to image God well in all that you do and help those you come in contact with feel valued as an image bearer of God too. Seek to image God well in all that you do and help those you come in contact with feel valued as an image bearer of God too. And if we approached every day like this, that today is an opportunity for me to to show God to the world in the way that I act, um, in the attitude that I have. And if I were to embrace every interaction with every human being that I come in contact with today as an opportunity to communicate value and love to them, 
strictly for the fact that they've been created in the image of God, what, 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 what difference that might would make, right? There's some people that don't need everybody to treat them this way. They just need one person to treat them this way. And you may get to be that opportunity. You may get to be that opportunity for somebody that you come in contact with, somebody that maybe everybody else is just kind of blowing by, not paying attention to. You get to, you get to communicate great value to them because of what you believe that Scripture says in Genesis about that individual, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they have the same theology as you or not, right? That, that they, they bear his image and have value, which means you don't have to know anything about them. You just have to see them, know that they're there, and know they have that value. We need to live in such a way where we seek to image him well. So I, w- I want to challenge you to approach every day this week that way, that everybody you come in contact with has great value. Image God well in the way that you treat them. Number two, when your schedule is disrupted, look for ways to adjust your attitude and your actions so they conform better to his image and repent if needed, right? That was Joel's message. Hey, pay attention to this plague of locusts, right? It's a big deal. It's disrupting our schedule. It's changing the way that we have to do things. Don't miss the opportunity to get things right now so that you prevent some other day of the Lord that has to happen, right? And I told you that's a timely message for us in the midst of all the disruption that we're experiencing right now, right? Um, and I would be very slow to try to attribute that to any specific sin, right? But I think that just the fact that we are in a state where our schedule's being disrupted by the coronavirus, that every single one of us ought to pause and reflect and think and say, what, what, what might God be trying to tell me individually, right? He is forcing me to do things differently, forcing me to have time to pause and reflect. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And there may be opportunity that you need to repent of something there too, Right? This is, this is a great chance to pause and reflect. So um, as Joel encouraged the people of Israel to do at the time, I would encourage you to do the same. Number three, look for injustices in your context and seek to correct them rightly. Look for injustices in your context. We talked about this in our discussion groups after my sermon on, on this a couple weeks ago. And I can't remember who all was in here, but I was specifically talking to some of our students um, I, know, I remember Jonah was in here, um, and I was talking to them about the fact that you guys see injustices that happen at school, right? So Luke and Libby, y'all see injustices that happen at the lunch table, in the hallways, in the classroom, right? Like when kids come to my office and say like, Mr. Vincent, I'm concerned because this kid's being made fun of and treated this way, and, and this is happening, and this is happening. Like plenty of other kids have already been made aware of that, Right? Like, this isn't the first time that somebody's come to this knowledge, right? So that message is true, not just when you get older. It may be even more true the younger that you are because you guys see injustices that maybe even as adults, we're not as privy to right now in our life. Um, but some of you are at an age right now where injustice is is prevalent, right? Because you're you're at an age right now where Kids are wrestling with the, the, their identity. They're wrestling with their value. They're wrestling with their worth, right? And they're, they're trying to find it in sports, in academics, in performance. They're trying to find it in everything. And they're gonna criticize others to, to try to make themselves feel better, to try to make themselves look better, right? So for our students that are in here, this is such a, 
a um, timely message for you because you have a chance to stand up, to speak up, and to fight for justice in your context, even if it means the possibility of losing friends, losing popularity, losing some of your status at our school, right? You have the chance to stand up and say, man, this is wrong. Like, the way that you're talking about this person, the way that you're belittling this person, the way that you're making a mockery of this person, it's not okay because that person's an image bearer of God, right? And you have the chance to, to combat that and say, I'm not gonna let that happen because I, I, I heard my pastor read from scripture and it says that I'm supposed to be a river that flows with righteousness and justice. And, and I, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and that may not be cool right now, but when that lion roars, it will be because I'll be on the right side, you know? And and, and I'll be able to say, you know what? I fought for justice in my context, right? Because like I, I valued the image quality of who that individual was in, in being created in the image of God, right? So let me just tell you, I don't care what age you are, man. This is, this, is a, this is a message for every single person in this room, every single person online, right? That we fight for justice. We fight for it in the different ways that God has given to us to be able to do that. And then number four, be ready to communicate the mercy and hope of God to those you believe are least deserving of it. Don't lose sight of the fact that the worst people in our life deserve his mercy and the hope that comes with that. All right, Jonah said, 40 days and you guys are done. And they had to figure out the rest of it on them, themselves. They had to take a chance that, man, if we do this, maybe God will relent, maybe God will forgive. We know that he does, Right? We get to couple the message of judgment with the message of hope, right? We get to communicate that, man, if you don't change, this is gonna happen, right? But if you do change, he is a merciful, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, right? We can communicate that. And we need to not hold that back from people that we believe don't deserve it, right? We need to, we need to remember the gospel's for the worst and we're part of that group, right? So there's some points of application to leave you with. Hopefully today's been helpful as just a recap and reminder but hopefully um, there's been some reminders as well of things that you were maybe convicted of previously. Maybe the world and the distractions of the world have, have gotten you over that conviction, and today was a chance to be reconvicted about some of this stuff. I'm gonna pray for us, and then I think we're gonna close with one more song. I wanna leave you with these thoughts today and hope that uh, we can implement them this week. God, we love you. We thank you for the message uh, that we've seen over the last several weeks in the Minor Prophets. I know that the, the poetry that's used can be quite confusing, but God, if we'll just pause and, and let your Holy Spirit teach us, there is much to be learned because there is much that is said in these small books. God, I pray that we would be people who understand how important it is that you have created us in your image and you have created others in your image and that we are to treat others accordingly and that we're to value righteousness. And when we see injustice happening, we see mistreatment happening, whether that's because of somebody's skin color, somebody's income status, somebody's ability level, God, that we would step in and not be okay with that. That we would right the wrongs that we see in our context and that we would be a source where righteousness and justice flow God, we hear your roar this morning. We hear your word. Give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to listen and to respond to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. 
For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.